Thank you so much for having me this morning. It is truly my privilege to be here with you this morning, to open up God's word with you. We know that God's word is sharper than any two-edged sword. It is a light unto our path. It is what nourishes our souls. God speaks to us through his word this morning, and it is such a joy and an honor to be here to open it up with you. This morning, we're going to be in John chapter 1, verse 19 through 29. But before we look at the text together, please join me in prayer. Almighty God, we come to you now, and we praise you for this time to hear from you in your word. We are utterly dependent upon you. We could do nothing apart from you. Almighty God, help me speak clearly, humbly, and boldly. Would we be edified and strengthened? Would we grow in our faith? We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. There they were. The sun was beating on their back. They were away from home, forced to do hard labor, exile, slavery. There was no end in sight. Yet, God delivered his people. He led them back to the promised land through Moses. We could read about this in Exodus 1 through 18. But this was not the last time God's people would be in exile in foreign and strange lands. Israel would be carried off to Assyria and Judah would be carried off to Babylon. God's people would be in exile in strange lands yet again. But God, in his good grace, brought his people back to the promised land. Right, we could read about this in, in First and Second Kings and Ezra and Nehemiah. But even though they escaped from Egypt and they escaped from Babylon, there would be a new exodus. A greater exodus. One in which God brings complete and final forgiveness of sins. John the Baptist is the one who prepared others for this greater and new exodus. This is what we'll see this morning in our text from John 1, 19-29. Our big idea is that John the Baptist's identity, actions, and message points to the new exodus. Right? John the Baptist's identity, who he is, and he explains who he isn't, John the Baptist's actions, his baptism, and John the Baptist's message. He says, behold, the Lamb of God. All of these things, they point forward to a new exodus. One in which God brings complete and final forgiveness of sins. So it is my prayer that we see the ways John turns our gaze. He turns our direction. He wants us to see this. It is my prayer that we see the way John turns our gaze to Jesus so that we would marvel in the person and work of Jesus. So first, let's look at the identity of John the Baptist in John chapter 1, verse 19 through 23. I'll go ahead and read that again, starting in verse 19. And this is the testimony of John. 
when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed, and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. So our main point in this section of scripture is John the Baptist's identity. John the Baptist's identity. So let's start at verse 9 here. Verse 19. And this is the testimony of John. Right? What precedes this is just an introduction to the book. Right? There's the eternal word. He was with God and was God. And he entered into flesh. It serves as an introduction to the book as a whole. And now, the first story that John includes here is the testimony of John the Baptist. So after the introduction of the book as a whole, the reason for John's testimony is given. And what's that reason? Well, the Jews sent Levites and, and, uh, Levites and priests from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? The Jews sent priests and Levites to interrogate John the Baptist. Now this phrase, the Jews, it, uh, in, in the, the Gospel of John, it's used about 70 times. Sometimes this phrase, the Jews, it, it just refers to those who are hostile to Jesus. They're at enmity with him. Sometimes it's used of those who embrace Jesus in faith. They commit their lives to him. They follow him. They give everything to follow Jesus because they see him for who he is. And sometimes this phrase, the Jews, refers simply to the religious leaders. Just the religious leaders of the time. And it's this last sense that this phrase is being understood here. The religious leaders, what they do, they sent Levites and priests. Levites and priests were basically responsible for leading worship and sacrifice at the temple. So what we have here is, is a group of religious leaders sending another group of religious leaders to interrogate John the Baptist. The religious leaders wanted to know who John the Baptist was. So starting in verse 20, he says, and 20 through 21, John the Baptist first tells us who he isn't. First, John the Baptist says he isn't the Christ. The Christ, the phrase the Christ, it simply means the anointed one. There was an expectation that an anointed one would come from the line of David. So for example, David's heirs, David's sons, are often described as anointed ones. Also, in 2 Samuel 7, God promised that David's dynasty would never end. One of David's sons would always sit on the throne. We see the same thing in places like Psalm 89, Psalm 132, and many places throughout the Psalms. There's an expectation that an anointed one is going to come from the line of David. So David's heirs are described as anointed ones, and one of David's sons would always sit on the throne. 
So there was an expectation that anointed one would come from the line of David. But there were also a lot of different understandings of who this Messiah would be during that time. Some thought that the Messiah would be a priest, a prophet. Some thought the Messiah, this anointed one, he would bring political liberation. They were under oppression from the Romans. And they were looking forward to a Messiah, an anointed one, who would deliver them from this political oppression. Is John the Baptist this Christ? Well, John empathetically says he is not the Christ. He confessed. He's going on record. And he's saying, I am not the Christ. Right? Says he, he did not fail to make this confession. He said, I want to put this on public record. He didn't fail to do that. And he did it freely. He said, I'm not the anointed run from the line of David or the expected Messiah. So first, we know that John the Baptist isn't the Christ. But then they asked him, are you Elijah? Right? In verse 21. What then? Are you Elijah? Well, remember, Elijah is just that Old Testament prophet we see in the book of 1 and 2 Kings. Check out what Malachi 4.5 says. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So there's this awesome and great day of the Lord that's coming. The day of the Lord is a constant theme we see in the prophets. It's going to come, but before it comes, what does Malachi 4.5 say? Elijah's going to come. So just maybe John the Baptist was this Elijah. There seems to be an expectation that Elijah will return. And maybe John the Baptist is this prophetic figure. But John once again says, no, I'm not Elijah. I'm not this person who you're expecting me to be. So he isn't the Christ. He isn't Elijah. But maybe he's the prophet. They ask him, what then? Are you, are you the prophet? Take a listen to Deuteronomy 18, 18. I will rise up for them a prophet like you among their brothers. God's going to rise up a prophet from amongst the Israelites. And what is God going to do? I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. So there is an expectation in the book of Deuteronomy that God is going to rise up another prophet amongst the people of Israel. So perhaps John the Baptist is this prophet. Yet again, John denies that he is this great prophet from Deuteronomy 18. Right, so John the Baptist isn't the Christ. He isn't Elijah and he isn't the prophet. Very good. Now we know who John the Baptist isn't. But the priests and Levites double down on their interrogation in verses 22 through 23. All right, John the Baptist, we now know who you're not. But who are you? Please tell us who you are. We need to give an answer to those who sent us. It's not going to be helpful if we go back and we could tell them everybody you're not. We need to be able to tell them who you are. And what is John the Baptist? Who does he say who he is? He's the voice in the wilderness, making straight the way of the Lord. 
as the prophet Isaiah said. Right? He's quoting from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. Now, if we take a step back and look at Isaiah, we see that in Isaiah 40, God's people would be prepared for God's coming by a prophetic voice. A prophetic voice is going to come and prepare the way for, the, for God's coming. Now, when Isaiah 40 is placed within the larger context of the whole, within the context of Isaiah, it helps us understand who John the Baptist is. Very helpful background information to our text here. When Isaiah 40 is placed within the larger context of Isaiah, we see that God's arrival would mark a new exodus. So a voice is preparing the way for God's coming, and when God comes, there's going to be a new exodus. But what is this new exodus? Well, Isaiah tells us what this new exodus is in Isaiah 40 through 53. Isaiah describes an event, an exodus, and an agent of that event. Who's going to bring that agent about? I mean, that event about. So in Isaiah, we see that God promised to free his people from exile in Babylon and the nations. Remember that God's people were in exile in Babylon, but God would free them. So the event that Isaiah describes is, is an exodus from Babylon. And the agent who's going to bring this about is Cyrus. But Isaiah does more. He describes another event and another agent. He describes the new exodus. Another exodus. We see that God promised to free his people from sin. God would bring forgiveness to his people by providing atonement. And the person who would bring this atonement, the person who would bring this freedom from sin, is the suffering servant in Isaiah 49 through 53. So this is what this means for our text in John. John is the voice preparing the way for this new exodus. John the Baptist was the herald of the new exodus. He announced that God was about to bring complete forgiveness to his people. And this is happening because of Jesus, the Lamb of God. An event is coming. And this event is one in which forgiveness is coming. And the one who's bringing this about is none other than Jesus, the Lamb of God. So we have seen that John the Baptist tells us who he is not and who he is. Now in a lineup... A person is trying to point someone else out. Right? Certain people are ruled out based upon a certain profile, and another person is identified. So John is ruled out being neither the Christ, Elijah, or the prophet. Rather, he is preparing the way for the true Christ. Right? He's not the Christ, but he's preparing the way for the true Messiah, the true anointed one, and the great prophet. So what are some things we can learn about the way that John is preparing? Here are some things that we could learn. First, our God is faithful. 
God promised that he was going to bring a new exodus. Complete forgiveness of sins. And he did. In the person and work of Jesus, our God is faithful. God always meets his promises. We also learn that the new exodus means that God is bringing his people home. To be with him. Untainted from sin. Eternally worshiping him. Complete joy. It means that his people are completely forgiven. It means that he brings freedom from sin. So dear family, brothers and sisters in Christ, don't forget these truths. That God is faithful. He brings forgiveness. And is bringing us home. So this is 2021. This may be the best year you have ever had. Or it may be the best year you ever will have. And I certainly hope that it is. For many of us, 2020 has been hectic and chaotic, stressful. I hope that this year is a good year for you. But sometimes there is a danger when things are going smoothly. Everything's at ease. We don't have to worry. There's less stress. What is this danger? It's, this danger is that it's easy to forget God's faithfulness. It's easy to forget who God is. It's easy to forget the salvation that he brought it's easy to take our eyes off of our great God. So brothers and sisters in Christ, enjoy these times. But always look to the one who is faithful and brings forgiveness. God has brought salvation and is bringing us home. But maybe 2021 will be the hardest year yet. Struck by grief, loneliness, anxiety, sorrow, financial struggles, relationship tensions. Your relationship with God is not where you want it to be, and your relationship with others is not where it should be. And sometimes when things are hard, we doubt God's faithfulness. We don't reflect on the salvation that is ours. We don't see God as big. Rather, God is distant, aloof. Sometimes we may say, does he still care? Where is he? But God has brought salvation and is bringing us home. Or maybe 2021 will not be terribly hard or great. Maybe we'll just be cruising. Ponder the faithfulness of God, brothers and sisters of Christ. Marvel in the salvation he brings. 
Pray that God would stir your affections, or your affections for him. God has brought salvation. And he's bringing us home. So John the Baptist not only explains his identity, but he also explains his actions. This is our second main point in our text. In John 1, 24 through 27. Let me go ahead and read that. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. This is our second point in this section, is John the Baptist's actions. John the Baptist's actions. In verse 24, the identity of those questioning John is referenced here. And this could be taken in a few ways, this verse. First, it could be taken in a way that the ESV has it. Simply right now, they had been sent from the Pharisees. The Pharisees are just that unique class of religious leaders. And this means, according to the ESV, that the priests and Levites that came to John, they were sent from the Pharisees. The Pharisees are, you know, the religious, uh, religious group, and they're the ones who sent another religious group, the priests and Levites, to interrogate John. But there's another way this verse can be rendered, depending on how one takes the, the grammar, how one understands the history of the, the circumstances in which John was written. The NIV does a good job of, of showing what this translation might look like. It says, Now the Pharisees who had been sent... So this means that those who were about to do the questioning were Pharisees. The Pharisees didn't send them. The Pharisees were part of the group. Another group sent them. But either way, whatever way you take, a group of religious leaders were continuing to interrogate John. They wanted to know, why are you baptizing John? What are you doing? You're not Christ. You're not Elijah. You're not the prophet. What are you doing here? Why are you baptizing? And John tells us what he is doing as he turns our gaze, as he directs our attention to the Christ, the anointed one. And so first in our text, it says, verse, 25, uh, verse 26, they asked him, uh, then he answered them. So this is John the Baptist's answer. He starts off by saying, I baptize with water. Right, so John here is just explaining what he's doing. He's like, guys, look. I'm baptizing. I have authority from God. I am the voice of one in the wilderness preparing the way of the Lord, and I'm, doing, I'm baptizing people with water. This is what I've been sent out to do. And John 1, 30 through 34, it shows that John's baptisms are a witness to Jesus. They show that his baptisms were meant to prepare people for Jesus. His baptisms were done in order that the Christ might be revealed. So John answers by saying, yes, I do indeed baptize. I have authority from God to do this. 
I am the voice of Isaiah 40 verse 3. I am the herald of this new exodus. But the one he is directing our attention to is so much greater. Look, I'm baptizing with water, but there's one so much greater than I am. I'm just preparing the way for this guy who's so much bigger than me. He continues to highlight this one, this greater one, than him. But the text says that this greater one is not known by the religious leaders. The religious leaders don't know Christ. The Christ, the anointed one. Fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures is standing there amongst them. And the religious leaders do not know him. John answers in the rest of verse 26. But among you stands one you do not know. Then he continues to say, Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. So even though the Christ's role takes place after John the Baptist, right? so John the Baptist is preparing the way for the Christ, so the Christ's role comes after John the Baptist, even so, even, uh, even so that that's the case, the Christ is greater. He is so great, John the Baptist says, that I am not worthy to untie his sandal. Check out what one commentator says about this. Although ancient teachers in Judaism usually expected disciples to function as servants, later rabbis allowed for one caveat. Unlike slaves, they did not tend to the teacher's sandals. Tending to the teacher's sandals was so low of a task that the teacher said, you don't have to do that. That's too low of a task. I expect you to be a servant, but you don't have to tend to my shoes. That's too degrading. That's too low. Their feet were nasty, right? They probably wore sandals all the time. Look at those feet. They're gross looking. You don't have to do that. I'll take my shoes off. I'll tend to my sandals. John the Baptist's He looks to the Christ. He says, I'm not even worthy to tend the sandals. Here, John is getting out of the way to show the greatness of Christ. He's turning our gaze to the Christ. John sees the Christ's magnificence, his splendor. John knows who he is and knows that he is unworthy to even untie his sandal. Now as the text unfolds, it is made clear that Jesus is this Christ. Jesus is this anointed one. So what is John the Baptist doing? John is getting out of the way to show the greatness of Jesus. And finally in verse 28, it shows the location of these events. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. Now, the location of these baptisms, the location of this interrogation, where did it happen? It happened in Bethany. Now, as far as I can tell, the exact, like the precise, exact location of these events is not known with any certainty. But here's the thing that we could know, this, this text could highlight, we can learn, is that these things that happen, these baptisms and interrogation, 
they're historical in event, they're historical in nature. They happened in real space and time. They're not just a made-up story. They happened in a place, and the text is highlighting that. This is one of the things that, that shows the reliability of the scriptures. It's concerned with the historical information of the events. And it also functions as a transition of the text as well. As it goes on to say that, you know, in, in verse 29, the next day, so it's a tra- another, uh, mar- serves as a transition of the text as well. So here in our section of scripture, we have seen that John explains his baptism as he emphasizes the greatness of Jesus. Now at a wedding, how weird would it be if the best man made it all about himself? Look at me! How awesome I am! This is my day! Probably not the best, best man. If that happened, I probably chose the wrong best man. Well, John here is not making it about himself. He's not saying, look at me. Look how awesome I am. I fulfill scripture. I'm the voice. That's me. I'm Isaiah 40, verse 3. This is my day, guys. I am preparing the way for Jesus. No, he doesn't do that. No, John is saying, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. He is marvelous. He is so wonderful that I am not even worthy to untie his sandals. He gets out of the way and points to Jesus. So let's continue to look at what we can learn from from John, what we could learn from this text as we apply it. First, let's look at the nature of John's witness. Right? John the Baptist is, is functioning as a witness to Christ. And I think this serves as a great model for Christian witness, for our witness. Right? John the Baptist pointed others to the splendor of Jesus. He got out of the way to show the greatness of Jesus. I think as we share the good news, let's remember, brothers and sisters, to get out of the way, to show the greatness of Jesus. Now, sometimes if you're like me, we can seek to win arguments merely so that we could look smart. Right? We, we show them. They didn't have any response to that. Look how smart I am. We don't say that. But sometimes that's what made me be thinking, if you're like me. Right? And one of the things I love about this church is that it makes Jesus the hero of the story. Jesus is the hero of, our sto- of the story. Right? When we tell our, the story of our lives, when, it, when we tell the story of our church, who's the hero of our story? Who do we, look, who do we make to look greater? We're not at the center. Jesus is at the center. The Bible's about Jesus. Our life is about Jesus. Jesus is at the center of our lives and everything we do. We're not the hero of our stories. Let's continue to remember that, brothers and sisters of Christ. Get out of the way to show the marvelous nature of who Jesus is and what he has done. But also, look at John's humility here. John the Baptist considered himself unworthy to untie his sandal. He knew who Jesus was, and that helped him know who he was. 
brothers and sisters, continue to turn your gaze to Jesus and see who he is. You will be humbled. Continue to know Jesus, and that will show you who you are. Another thing I love this church, about this church, community groups, one-on-one Bible studies. Let's continue to study God, his attributes, his, work, his actions. Seek to understand him. And let's believe it. And when we do these things, that will help us see who we are. One of the ways to cultivate humility is just studying who God is. You will be humbled in light of who God is. So we have, we have talked about the identity and actions of John. Now let's talk about his message in John one twenty nine, John one twenty nine says this. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He starts off by saying, The next day. Right, so day one. You have the religious leaders questioning John the Baptist. Who are you? What are you doing? Right? The next day, John continues to witness about Jesus. The next day, and the next day, Jesus was coming towards him. And what did John the Baptist say? Behold. He's saying, look, see, take notice of everyone, pay attention. He wants to grab our attention to emphasize what's coming next. And what is that? The Lamb of God. Jesus is the Lamb of God. Now what is this? Does this Lamb of God have a reference to some Old Testament theme or image? Some say that it's, it's a reference to the Passover Lamb in Exodus 12. The Israelites had to slaughter a Passover lamb, smear the blood over the door. Angel of death would pass by the door. Others say it's the the lamb of Isaiah 53, 7. The lamb that is led to the slaughter. Others say it's the victorious lamb, the conquering lamb, the mighty lamb of Revelation. Revelation 4, Revelation 17. Maybe John's this conquering lamb. Or maybe he's the lamb God provided for Abraham in Genesis 22. Abraham was going to sacrifice his son. Then there was a lamb, as our text this morning. And instead of sacrificing his son, he he sacrificed the lamb. So is this text emphasizing any of these particular lambs? Is Jesus the, the lamb of Exodus 12 or the lamb of Isaiah 53 or the lamb of Revelation? Or maybe it's not referring to any of them in particular, but to all of them in general. There's this theme of Passover, the theme of lamb and sacrifice, and maybe it's just a reference to all of them. So I think there's a sense in which it's referring to them all in a general sense. All of Scripture is pointing towards Jesus, so there is a sense in which Jesus is the fulfillment of all of this imagery. Yet, I think, if I had to take a stance, I think this imagery from Isaiah, since the imagery from Isaiah was just used, Isaiah 40, it seems like John is stating that Jesus is the lamb led to the slaughter in Isaiah 53, 7 through 10. Jesus is the agent who brings this new exodus. 
In Isaiah 40, he says, I'm preparing the way for this new exodus, the event, and the person, the agent who's going to bring this about, is the Lamb of God. But this imagery of a lamb being slaughtered for the forgiveness of God's people in Isaiah 53 is reminiscent of Exodus 12. So in other words, the Lamb of Isaiah 53 fulfills the Passover imagery of Exodus 12. See how it could refer to multiple references to this theme of the Lamb of God? But here's the big takeaway. Here's the big takeaway. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus, the eternal word who was with God and was God, upholding the universe by the word of his power, entered into humanity. Second person of the Trinity entered into humanity and he dies. He dies. And he dies to bring forgiveness. He dies to take away sin. Jesus is the substitutionary sacrifice. He died in the place of sinners. Right? So, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. How does John describe sin and sinners throughout the gospel? Well, in John 1.10... It says that he was coming in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. So even though humanity was created through Jesus, they did not know him or receive him. They didn't respond to him. Now according to John, sin means that people walk in the darkness. They're walking in the darkness. It means, like it says in John 8, that they are bound by the devil. Or like it says in John chapter 9, that they are blinded to the truths of God. Or like it says in many places throughout John, people love their own glory more than the glory of God. They're more considered about them looking big and awesome and not concerned about God looking big. They could care less if God looks big or small. They just want to look important. Look how awesome I am. This is my day. They live for their own glory, and they love that glory more than the glory of God, more than making him big. Jesus is the lamb who takes away this sin, the brokenness within our own hearts. Walking in darkness, loving our own glory, blinded by the truths of God. Jesus dies for that. He dies in the place of sinners. He took their place. He got what they deserve. And it says he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Right? Jesus, the Lamb of God, he takes away sin not only for the Jew, but also the Gentile. He brings forgiveness to all types of people. So dear Christian, rest in the grace and forgiveness of God. When we see the brokenness of the world and the brokenness within our hearts, 
What are we beholding? Are we beholding the Lamb of God? Remember, brothers and sisters, to rest in the grace and forgiveness of God. Rejoice in the salvation that he brings. Jesus died in your place. He took away your sin by dying for it. He defeated death and he lives. He rose from the dead. Some of you may feel and may be thinking, maybe God doesn't want to forgive me anymore. If you only knew the darkness that still lies within my heart. I've been on this road several times. I don't think God wants me anymore. Come to Jesus. He says he died for that sin. Come to him. Believe the truth. Maybe you not, may not feel forgiven. Maybe you do feel estranged from God, but believe in his word. He says he died for your sin. All of it. Let's let the gospel propel our lives. So as we seek to be humble, as we look outside of ourselves, to live for the glory of God and seek to serve others, as we become, as we decrease so that he might increase, as we seek to, to live for others and not be concerned always about ourselves looking big, but as we would seek to make God big and serve others, remember you do it because you are saved. You don't seek to be humble and live for God's glory in order to earn God's salvation, his forgiveness or his love. We are forgiven. You are forgiven because of the work of Jesus. That is the foundation for seeking to live for the glory of God and living a life of humility. So live in that truth. Now friends, if you are here and you don't know Christ, if you're here and you're not sure if you're a Christian or you're not even sure about this religion thing or you're not sure, quite sure of much when it comes to, to who Jesus is, Know that you are here, but you're not here by accident. God created everything, including humanity, including you and I. But we have sinned. We deserve God's perfect justice. His perfect wrath. We are exiled to sin. But Jesus comes. He lived the perfect life. He died the death we deserve. And he defeated death and rose from the dead. So put your trust in Jesus. Believe who he says he is and what he does. Turn to him. Check out John. Read the Gospel of John. He will bring freedom to your life. You don't have to live in exile to addictions and sinful habits. He brings freedom. You will enjoy God. You will be going to him. So friends, if, if you are here and you don't know Christ, please don't leave until you talk with someone, anyone. So in conclusion, in John 1, 
19 through 29, John the Baptist's identity, actions, and message point to the new exodus. John the Baptist isn't the Christ. He isn't Elijah. He isn't the prophet. Rather, he is preparing the way for Jesus who brings the new exodus as the Lamb of God. Turn your gaze to Jesus and marvel in the person and work of Jesus. Please join me in prayer.